Hi, thanks for joining me. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell, and you're listening to Sermons at High Peak. You know, I wonder how long it has been since you've been through the process of buying a new car. You know, it's a difficult thing, isn't it? I, I, I both love it and hate it. I, I like the excitement of the possibility, but I hate the process that you have to go through, don't you? You know, I wish you could just go down to Walmart and pick one off the shelf and drive it home, but it's not ever that easy. Even the places that claim it is, it's not. Um, but, you know, you got to choose what make you're going to get. And I've kind of been one who, you know, I've always kind of bought the same make of car. If you've noticed, we've owned a few cars since we've lived here, and they're always Hondas, except for our boys, and those were given to us by the parent, grandparents. But, uh, and then you got to choose the model to pick. You know, which one are you going to choose? Say, if you get like a Chevy... And you try to decide, well, which Chevy am I going to get? Well, what style will you get? Maybe a car or a truck or an SUV, you know, a light-duty van? Who knows? I mean, there's all kinds of them. And then when you decide on it, you think, okay, I know I'm going to get that that truck. And then you say, well, what kind of truck am I going to get? And, you know, it's that process. You've got to make all kinds of decisions, don't you, in this process. And then finally, when you pick it, maybe you'll pick, you know, I mentioned Chevys. That's actually my least favorite, but maybe some of you love them. Maybe you finally pick on that, that red Chevy Malibu, and you're all excited, and you decide, now i got to decide where to park it when I drive it. I know that's silly for you to think about that, but you do. You have to decide where you're going to park because you got this new car. You don't want to park in that cramped little spot where everybody's going to ding you on the doors. Have you had that happen? Just recently, I was parked in a parking lot, and someone backed out, scraped the side of my car, pulled the molding off of the wheel area, and then just left. Someone else saw it and put a note on my window she- uh, windshield telling me that that had happened, and they put down the license plate. You know, I, nothing going to come out of it, so I just didn't even bother, to be honest with you. But how do you handle your choices. I bring that all up to say you have a ton of choices to make. Whether it's a big thing like buying a new car or a small thing, where are you going to park that new car? It might be a big thing like what career will you follow? Or it might be a small thing like what shirt am I going to wear to work today? There's tons of choices that we have to make. And the Bible teaches us that as we face real choices, Sometimes it's pretty clear the choice that you and I are supposed to make. Sometimes the Bible makes it explicit and obvious. And strangely enough, we're going to look at a passage today that doesn't seem very explicit and is certainly not at all obvious what it all is saying, but at the end of it, the message is going to be very clear. And I hope you'll understand that message. What is that choice that we make that we need to make according to Daniel chapter 11 and 12. We started this last week, this last vision of the book of Daniel. I've been going through this and uh, I've just really enjoyed teaching through the book of Daniel. Many biblical scholars will tell us that at the end of Daniel, uh, you have a choice. Is this passage talking about the Antichrist at the end of time or is it talking about a king in the 100s BC named Antiochus IV? A lot of people will say it's all about a guy named Antiochus, and we've talked about him. He was probably one of the most evil and oppressive kings to ever dominate the Israel uh, region. He was uh, a part of Alexander the Great, 
he came out of that kingdom, uh, and he, he was just an evil guy, just a mean guy. And last week we talked about how he got in a fight with uh, Egyptians, and things didn't go well for him there, and so he went back, and on his way home, he stopped in Israel, killed maybe 80,000 people, including the high priest, and sacrificed a pig on the altar. And if you know about the Jewish people, you know, they consider pigs, pork, unclean. And so that might be the most insulting way to insult them. But what we learn in this prophecy of Daniel 10, 11, and 12 is that the details are incredibly specific. And while many of them are fulfilled by Antiochus IV, there's a shift right in the end of chapter 11 that totally changes and after it changes nothing else that he predicts comes true in the life of Antiochus and so it clearly is telling us something else it's talking about something else it's predicting something else and what I say is I say that Daniel in this prophecy that God gave him was using this evil character Antiochus in the life of the Jews to say but one day there's going to be a far worse king ruler and he'll dominate the whole world. And if you thought Antiochus IV Epiphanes was bad, he's got nothing compared to what this fellow is going to be like. And we see that shift. <clears throat> and that incredible shift is going to take place right about after Daniel chapter 11, verse 35. Starting in verse 36, there's a grammatical change that's not quite obvious in English, but it clearly says this is now about something new. This is now a different topic, but using the same context, the same ideas. And none of what is predicted about this next public figure came true back in the early days, in the ancient times before Christ, in that person Antiochus. So chapter 11 is an incredibly accurate chapter of prophecy. There's 135 different accurate prophecies in verses 1 through 35, and every one of them came true exactly as they were mentioned very explicitly it shows us something if God can reveal a prophecy to a man who lived some three to four hundred years before all of this took place and be that specific he seems to know more than we do doesn't he <laughs> if that's not the understatement of the world isn't it he knows so much more. He is omniscient that big theological word meaning that God knows everything that anyone could ever know God knows it now, why is that important to us? Why is it included in this prophecy? In fact, we've talked about Antiochus over and over and over again in the book of Daniel. Why is he rehashing it? Because I think God was saying, hey, look, my, look at my track record. See what I can do. In the future, Daniel, there's going to be people reading your book. And at the end of this prophecy, he's going to say, Daniel, seal this up and protect it so that it'll be ready for all of time. So people later on are going to be able to read it. People like us today in 2020 are going to be able to read it and look back and say, look how accurate he was. Look how perfect these predictions were. But now that it's shifted to something new, this must be about the future. But you know, I bet, I bet that it's all going to come true just like these other things. Just like those other 135 things, the rest of this chapter and into chapter 12, that prophecy, I bet that's all going to come true just like these did. In other words, what God is doing is he's putting a level of faith in his omniscience that we can trust it and believe in it. And by the way, that's going to make it very clear and obvious how we ought to react to it. 
With that level of accuracy, it gives us incredible confidence in the rest of this prophecy. And so we're going to start. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. And this prophecy is about the Antichrist. The Antichrist. Who is that? Well, first John said there's already Antichrists among you. And you know what? You can read the news today and see people who are Antichrist. They don't like Jesus. They don't like his people. They want to stop you from gathering and worshiping. They want to stop you from singing. They want to behead you in the Middle East. They want to just destroy you. They're all over the world, and they are becoming more bold than ever before, especially here in our country. But there's going to be a Antichrist, a person, a being, and this passage is going to protect him. And in the next two parts of this passage, we're going to learn two things. We're going to learn about his character. How does he behave? And then we're going to learn about his activity. What's he going to do? So let's start in verse 36. <clears throat> it says in verse 36, I'm reading from the New King James. It says, then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every God. Shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. And I hope in your translation that first God is capitalized and the second one isn't. And then he shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. In other words, what has been determined, what God planned, this is all part of his plan. It's going to happen. Verse 37, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers, showing that he seems to have come out of belief in our God, the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jesus, <laughs> Uh, but it says, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their, in their place, he shall honor a God of fortresses. That word probably is more naturally translated armies. This is a guy who loves armies. This is a guy who loves military. And a God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Now real quickly, we learn about his character here. Talks a little bit about what he's going to do, but it's more about who he is, what he wants to do. And we talk about this character of the Antichrist. Number one, he's powerful. He'll be able to do whatever he wants. The world's not going to stand in his way. Number two, he's arrogant. He makes the whole world bow down and worship him as a god. Second, or thirdly, he's blasphemous. He speaks out against religion, but more importantly, he speaks out against the one true God. Even though it seems he may have come out of faith in God, or at least he acted like he did. The fourth thing, he's going to be incredibly successful. Because people won't try to stop him, he'll be able to do whatever he wants. He'll be able to have incredible success. And what this is going to do is he's going to achieve his goals during the end period, that which we'll call the Great Tribulation. We'll talk about that in a minute. And also he'll be corrupt. He'll be absolutely corrupt. He'll start rewarding people who idolize him, giving them special jobs. We call this crony capitalism today or crony governmentalism. In other words, all the people who say, I bow down to you, he's going to say, good, I'm going to put you in special power, special places where you're going to have the authority to do great things, but you do it for me because I'm number one here. 
Now that's a lot there, and we're not going to have time to go through all of that individually, but just see the kind of person he is. An incredibly powerful, arrogant man or person who is going to have great success during this period. Now in verse 40, it says, At that time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land. That is probably capitalized in some of your translations. What does that mean? That's Israel, Jerusalem. The glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. In other words, folks, sort of right around there in Jerusalem. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt. He shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasure of gold and silver and over precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of the, his people between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end. And no one will help him. Now what do we see here? Before you get to that very last phrase, what we're talking about here is an incredible timeline. Now I'm going to kind of piece together what we've learned throughout the, all the different uh, visions in Daniel. And I'm going to give you this timeline. I'm going to put it up there so that you can see it. This timeline of the Antichrist. I hope you can find, find that and follow along with that if it's not too small. But number one, there's going to be this world leader. This Antichrist is a world leader. And his roots possibly in Rome because it's, he says it's coming out of faith in, in the God. Some people believe he might come out of Rome, but that's not necessary. He's just going to have a Christian origin. Uh, but he will rise as the Antichrist. They're going to put him into power because of one reason. He's going to be able to solve the Middle East peace problem. Now we look at things going on in our current situation. And for years I thought, well, how in that is that ever going to happen? But you can start seeing the groundwork being laid for it. Now listen, I'm not saying that Donald Trump is the Antichrist. <laughs> Could be, I doubt it. But I'm saying that what uh, this administration has been able to do, bringing peace to Israel, we now see it's possible. What if all of a sudden all of the nations surrounding Jerusalem came together and brought peace, including Palestine? If the Palestinians and the Jews sign up on the dotted line, find out who made that happen. That's very likely, the Antichrist. I'm not guaranteeing it, because for all we know, this stuff isn't going to happen for another thousand years. But if it happens in our lifetime, that's a possibility. How could that happen? I think it's possible that if they make an agreement that says Palestine is its own state, but the temple can be rebuilt. When you see that temple getting rebuilt, then you know it's going to start ticking. And that's what's going to happen. The, tick, the time, the clock will tick when the temple is rebuilt. We're going to have seven more years. Where do we get the seven? Daniel said that there are 70 weeks of years. And each week of years is a seven-year period. And we saw when we saw that uh, vision earlier in the book that we saw how 69 of them have already happened but then there was going to be a long period of time in between 69 and 70 that 70th is going to be this time of the great tribulation a seven-year period of peace followed by extreme persecution and so that's when it happens when the temple is rebuilt that's when the time starts ticking for the end 
Persecution of believers is going to grow over that seven-year period. But in the middle of it, it's going to get worse. Israel will be invaded by this Antichrist. He's going to set up his uh, uh, throne, his kingdom, right there in Jerusalem, possibly even in the temple. He's going to do something very much like Antiochus, who sacrificed a pig in the temple. Who knows, he might even do the very same thing. But he's going to set up a religion that worships now him instead of Yahweh or Allah or any other God in the world. And everyone will have to honor and glorify him as God. He's going to prop himself up as the focus of the world. And then there's going to be a final battle, which the Bible calls Armageddon at the end of seven years. He'll direct his forces from the temple. That's where it says from the beautiful land where he's going to set his tents, where it means where his dwelling place is going to be. He's going to direct his forces, but the battle will end with a catastrophic failure for Antichrist because God is going to work and defeat him in one final cataclysmic battle, which is honestly, from what I read, going to be an incredible, incredible victory, but at the same time, an anticlimax. Because it's like this huge dominant figure, just like that, he's going to lose. It's going to be gone in a second because of the power and glory of God. And that's when the fun begins, because that's when Jesus comes back. Now, if all of that comes exactly the way I've lined it out, that's great. I can't wait for it. I'd kind of like to see the start of it. I don't want to see the end of it. We'll talk about that in a minute, too. But when it happens, I don't know. I just have a feeling it's coming sooner than we think. Now let's pick up in Daniel chapter 12. As we begin to see a little bit of what God is going to do at this end. In verse 1 it says, At that time Michael shall stand up. Remember the archangel Michael? He was helping this visionary being, this being that we believe was angel Gabriel. He was helping him fight over Persia. And then he finally showed up. And helped the people of Jerusalem in Daniel's day. <clears throat> it says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen before. In other words, Michael is the archangel of the Jewish people. It's his job to protect them and work with them. There's going to be, there is going on this, this cataclysmic, not cataclysmic, this worldwide battle in the spiritual realm for the souls of people. And the greatest, most powerful angel, Archangel Michael, is the one assigned to protect the Jews. That's because they're God's chosen people even today. Even after the church has arisen. Even after we are grafted in and adopted into the family. We're here in order to woo them back to faith. And this great tribulation is going to be all about that. Finally trying to bring as many of those Jews into the realm of faith in God. It says in the middle of verse 1, it says, Even to that time, and at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. What book? The Lamb's book of life. The roll of heaven. Where the roll is called up yonder, and you want to be there. In verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Now, look at this. There's two groups of these people asleep. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to light righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This tells us that God fights for his people and he does so in a couple of ways. 
First thing is God seals his people for all eternity. That's one of the lessons that we're getting out of this. He seals his people for all eternity. The great prince, as it's identified here, Archangel Michael, he's going to stand watch over the people who trust and believe in him. There's a promise that there's going to be a great time of suffering as such you've never seen before. But when you're sealed by the belief and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and he protects you by putting his Holy Spirit in your life, then you're not going to have to worry because he's going to protect you. He will deliver us. We look at this. There's a big question, though. This sealing promises delivery, protection for all eternity. But there's a seven-year period of great suffering for people who believe. The question is, you and I, that hasn't started yet, but you and I who believe now, are we going to have to live through that? Is it possible that we might have to suffer during this seven-year period? Now, a lot of you who have studied this before will say, no, I know I don't have to because of the rapture. Well, that's interesting. That's true, I think. But is it certainly true? Is it something I'm willing to uh, uh, bet my entire eternity and future on? Absolutely not. Because the Bible is not explicitly clear about that, even though it's very clear about a lot of things. But there's three basic beliefs about the rapture. The rapture of the church is going to happen on a timeline, and it's going to happen either before tribulation, after the tribulation, or possibly even right in the middle of the tribulation. And we look at 1 Thessalonians 4.17, probably one of the biggest biblical supports for the idea of a rapture. Look at that. It says, then, he, then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. There's going to be some kind of event where people who are alive are going to be taken up to heaven all at once. And that doesn't seem to mention anything about death. And so I believe that's talking about the rapture of the church. But notice it doesn't say when. It doesn't give us a timeline of when this is going to happen. And so some people, I've got a timeline picture up here. Look at the D on this picture. That's at the end. You notice that the the great tribulation is that whole, the black blocks. And right in the middle of it, something's going to change. Remember I said that there would be peace. They'd rebuild the temple. But right in the middle of it, The Antichrist is going to evade Jerusalem. He's going to do something horrible and terrible to the temple. And he's going to set himself up as the object of worship. A God for all the people on the earth. And then after that, it's going to get horrendously bad. The persecution is going to be horrible. Now, if you believe what a lot of people believe, it's going to be at the end of that whole tribulation period. Jesus comes back and at the same time, he'll take all the people left up to heaven with him. Verse uh, Matthew 24, 29, listen to this. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they shall gather his elect from the four corners Four winds, rather, from one end of the sky to the other. Some people believe this is saying that number D up there, that it's at the end of this tribulation. It says, you'll see the sign, Jesus is coming. And when that happens, right after that, he's going to grab all of us and take us out. 
Now others say, no, that's not at the end. That's talking about the beginning. That's not talking about the second coming of Christ. That's just talking about Christ is going to come and have his angels blow a trumpet and the rapture will come. And all that's in the spiritual realm. People on earth won't see it, but Christians who are raptured will see it. But that's a possibility that it could be at the end. If that's the case, you and I are going to have to suffer if we survive to the time of the great tribulation. If we don't, anybody who does will have to live through it all. Verse 31 in that passage uh, says that after he will gather his elect, the problem is he could gather them from heaven and not from earth. So maybe that gathering is going to be a time where he gathers them from heaven and brings him them back. And only those who got saved during the Great Tribulation. So in other words, the church could be raptured at the beginning or middle of the Great Tribulation and go to heaven and all the others who died before the, the Tribulation happened, they'll come back from, from heaven and they'll be resurrected in this great time and that's when Jesus comes again. Do you understand what I'm saying? So in other words, it may not be the rapture at all that that's talking about. I know this gets complex and gets detailed, but what I'm trying to say is it's not certain that it happens at the end. In fact, there's possible evidence it may not be at the end. So some people believe, no, it's going to be at the midway point. And so put that timeline back up there. You look at the letter B. That's the halfway point. That when God notices that things are about to get much worse than they've ever, than they've ever been, he's going to say, church, come on. I want to protect you and take you out. That's clearly a challenge uh, to this idea. It's difficult to understand. But when the Antichrist will change and he'll be, go from a peaceful figure to a warring figure and he'll bring war into the Middle East after having brought peace, then this sudden disappearance could potentially be the thing that brings about this evil. Notice how the whole world has changed because of a virus. What if suddenly millions of people all over the world suddenly just disappeared? You could imagine Things would change after that. Oh, they'll come up with all kinds of explanations and lies. It'll be all over the news, whether it's CNN or Fox News. You know, there's some prediction for it. There's going to somehow somebody's going to come up with a way to lie to the people and make them think that it wasn't the rapture. But understand this. It's going to happen at some point, whether it happens here in the middle or not. And so it's very possible that it could come at this middle point and that that will usher in this intense period of persecution. But again, it's hard to find biblical support for it. But another one is that letter A. At the very beginning, pre-tribulation, that's the most common view. But most of all, <clears throat> most of all the people who are both pre or post, they look at this timeline and they remember this. There's the death of Christ. Old Testament believers become believers, and they have been in heaven. New Testament believers who died already, they're in heaven. But then there's the end of that church age, and a rapture comes at the beginning of the tribulation. And so the rest of the people who are still alive at that point are protected from the whole time. And that great tribulation, there are going to be new believers during that time. And so the description of Jesus coming back and bringing new believers from earth, but also believers from heaven at that time. And then the trumpets will blare and the end will come and that will be the final victory over the Antichrist and Satan. Here's what I think. I think it's letter A. But I could not stand before you with a great dogmatism. I could not pound the pulpit over it. I think it's, to me, 
obvious. There are many places that seem to talk about this. I won't get into all of it. But I do know this, that after it's all over, Jesus wins the whole thing. He's the victor. Look at Revelation 3.10. It says, because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on earth. I think that's the greatest testimony to say you and I will not have to live through the great tribulation. The rapture will come before it. Now, if you do a Bible search for the word rapture, you won't find it. It's just not there. That's a term that, uh, a Latin term that has been taken to describe what I believe the Bible teaches. It's a Latin term that means, you know, a, a taking or a releasing, uh, a rapture, that everything comes or everything is taken out. See, in context, Jesus here in that passage in Revelation, he's talking to one of the seven churches. But he's saying that you're not going to have to face that hour of testing, that great tribulation, that time that's going to be worse than it's ever been before. And I hold on to that hope that we won't have to face it if we trust Jesus. We are told that the tribulation, though, is to woo the Jews back to Jesus. And so we don't have to be there because we've already trusted him. We don't have to be there because he's already secured our salvation. It's a new age, a new time when he's going to deal differently than the world. He dealt differently with the world before Christ came and after he resurrected, everything changed. And then when he takes his church out, he's going to deal with everyone in the world in a very different way then as well. And so I believe that Christians won't have to face the great tribulation. I could be wrong. You could be wrong if you believe it. But look at verse 1 of Daniel chapter 12. It says, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since. Nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. He's talking to the Jews. The great tribulation is a time to draw Jews into faith in Jesus Christ. God, in his great love and grace, is going to give them one last chance before it's all over. And not just a day or a week or one sermon, but seven years. And other people will get saved too. Praise the Lord for that. Maybe you have a lost friend, and maybe they won't ever trust Jesus. But if the rapture should take place in their lifetime, after you've witnessed to them and told them about it, maybe they'll go, whoa, that's what, that's what my Christian friend was talking about. Barb has a, an aunt that has said, she read those left behind books and she said, if it happens like that, I'll believe. But I don't believe it now. I'm praying that it happens soon. <laughs> so that people all over the world who said just like that will start believing. But no matter what you believe, know this, whether we are protected by taking out at the A point at the beginning or at the middle point or at the end, we will be protected for the greatest time of suffering. That is that time in which people will be resurrected. Look at verse 2 and 3. It says, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life, and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight, that means understanding, they know the truth, they've believed it, those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What's he saying there? He's saying those who uh, have in their life been a great witness and have shown the whole world what it means to be in faith in Jesus Christ. 
Let the whole world know that if you trust for, for Jesus for forgiveness of your sins and you can have eternal life, then you will shine brightly in the end. But some people are going to be resurrected in the end and they're not going to be resurrected for eternity in heaven. It's going to be an eternity in hell. There's going to be a time of, of uh, uh, disgrace here on earth at that resurrection and then there's going to be a time of eternal contempt in hell. Think about that. When you see many, what does that mean? It means not everybody. I'm, I'm sorry, it doesn't mean everybody. Or it does mean everybody. It's not just many, it's everyone. All people are going to be resurrected. But when, you, when, uh, when they say many, the emphasis is on a huge number instead of uh, the people that come out of this, this huge number. It's all who have died before that time. Everybody who's ever died is going to face a, a physical resurrection. But there's two groups of those. Some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. I wonder what that's going to be like. To see people all over the earth living again. And in that moment, I don't know how long it'll take. Probably not very long. But they'll immediately be taken. And it says in the book of Revelation, it says there's going to be a time when this evil figure, this antichrist along with Satan, are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And you know what? The people who are resurrected without Christ, physically brought back to life without Christ, they themselves will be cast in as well. That's that eternal contempt. Imagine your neighbor kids are bullying you. <clears throat> I mean, they're bullying your kids. You know, they're out and playing all the time and your children come in and uh, they complain because the neighbor kids, they've been stealing my toys again. Or, or they've been breaking them or they've been beating me up. Every time I'm there, they make fun of me or they push me down. My clothes are always getting dirty. And so you go over and talk to the parents first. But that doesn't fix it. They just keep it up. They're just mean, rotten kids. And so you give them time after time, and sometimes you warn them, and, and you tell your son or your daughter who's being bullied, you go out and tell them to stop and stand up for yourself, and you, you keep doing that. You don't want them to fight, but you say, don't, you know, don't back down, but don't fight them. That's hard to do. I don't know how to, sort of that middle road, but that happens, and they just keep beating the kids up, and they keep making fun of them and stealing their toys and wrecking stuff, and now they're even coming into your yard and breaking your stuff and your plants and all of that. And finally, what happens? As a parent, you've reached a limit, and you're not putting up with any more. Folks, I want you to know our Heavenly Father loves us, and when you've trusted Him, yeah, we might have to live through some bullying in this earth. It's called persecution. Jesus faced it far more than we did. But there is going to come a point when he's going to say, enough, it's over. And when that happens, there's going to be two groups of people standing. One group of people are going to be the people that have given their life to Christ. They've been a witness for Jesus Christ because when you give your life to Christ, you just can't help but being a witness if you say you're a Christian and you're not a witness, you need to really examine whether you're really a Christian. And he says, you're going you're to show the glory of God throughout your whole life. And so you know what? God's going to make you glorious in all eternity. We will be the trophies of God in heaven. But there's another group of people. Another group standing at the end. 
the bullies of the faith, <laughs> the people persecuting Jesus and Christians, the people rejecting faith in Jesus Christ. And those folks, he says, it's enough. Punishment now is coming. I started by saying that you have a choice to make. You can either give your life to Christ or you can be swallowed up by evil. Which one will you pick? The rest of this chapter in chapter uh, 12 uh, talks about what comes after this. He says to Daniel, he says, I want you to secure the vision so that it's available for all time. Why? Because he wants people to read the first part and say, wow, if that all came true, then the second part is going to come true. And that's why we're reading it today in October 2020 here in Burke County, North Carolina. And there's a point where one of the figures that's standing there asks, how long is this going to happen? And he says it's going to be a time, times, and a half a time. That's counting that great tribulation, that worst part of the tribulation, three and a half years. Time, two times, and half a time. That's three and a half. But look at verse 9 of Daniel chapter 12. He said, Go on your way, Daniel, for the words are secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished, that's that midway point in the Great Tribulation when the temple, they'll stop sacrificing to God and start sacrificing to the Antichrist. And the abomination of desolation is set up. There will be 1,290 days. Happy is the one who waits and reaches 1,335 days. But as for you, go on your way to the end. You will rest and then you will stand to receive your allotted inheritance at the end of days. When you do the math with those numbers, there's two ways to count in Jewish culture. There's the scientific way, 365 days a year, right? But there's sort of a ceremonial way. They counted 360 days. And those two numbers sort of line up with each of those. The point is, the end is going to come just before this midway point. 1,335 days before the end. And then after about, you know, 45 days, that's the real beginning of the end. But the point I'm making here, I want us to see at this very end, where he says, you will stand to receive your allotted inheritance at the end of of days. The final word of Daniel is that we all stand at a fork in the road. Cleansing leads to understanding and understanding leads to eternal life, to glory in God's heaven or rejection, which leads to disgrace in the end here on earth and eternal contempt for all eternity. When God finally says, that's enough, the punishment now must come. The intensity, of the, the intensity of the suffering is going to grow. You and I might have to live through it. We might not. But what you want to know is it will be nothing compared to that eternal suffering. The suffering in this life, even at that end, will be nothing. And finally, at that end, it will be mostly directed at Christians. So the non-Christians probably will live easily. They'll, you know, they'll not have the mark of the beast, whatever that thing is that identifies who bows down and worships the Antichrist. So they're, won't gonna, they're not going to suffer as much. But halfway through, it start, start to get bad. But he says, you're going to escape. Whether it's at the end of that, the middle of it, or the beginning of it, you will escape only if you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's the most important choice anyone has to make.
And while a lot of this is confusing, and even as I preach it, I'm sort of going, I don't know about this stuff. And some of you listening, maybe because of the way I'm preaching, are going, what's he talking about? But what's most important is that you see this clear choice. Will you believe Jesus and trust him to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you of all your unrighteousness, and promise to live your life for him? If you do, you'll receive that Holy Spirit who will seal you for all eternity. And he'll put you on his mantle in heaven, not literally, but figuratively as a trophy for his grace. Or you'll reject it and receive nothing except eternal suffering in a place called hell. Thank you so much for listening to our sermons from High Peak. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell, the pastor of High Peak Baptist Church. And if God has really spoken to you through this message, please get in touch with me. You can go over to highpeakchurch.com and look for a way to contact us. Or if you want, you can come directly to me at pastor at highpeakchurch.com. We're also on Facebook, searching for High Peak Church. We'd love to see you. We have our services every Sunday morning at 11 a.m., Sunday evening at 6 p.m. in our fellowship hall, and then also midweek service on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Please come and join us. We've got classes for all ages. God bless you, and thanks for listening.